The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. I'm joined with one of the people who is a member of the Writers Guild and is one of the striking writers. He is Josh Gondelman. He's worked on the likes of uh, Tonight with John Oliver and is a stand-up comedian writer in his own right. Josh, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. It is a pleasure. It's slightly, con- it, is, it is complicated to wrap your head around the strike. First of all, in a culture where we're used to thinking of writers as um, solo artists who just do gig economy. If you get something that you can write, you do it. And if you don't, you don't. It is very different in the States. So can you give us a bit of an understanding of how it works in America and what the issues are with the Writers Guild? Sure. So I think one of the differences with American TV is how many shows have kind of long running rooms, especially uh, shows with long series orders, right? That if if there's 22 episodes of a show or even 13 episodes of a show, there's a culture of a writer's room working together to, to create that show. And the, um, and late night, of course, those rooms are, you know, for, for, a show that's once a week might be eight to ten writers, but more for a show like Saturday Night Live, even that airs live and requires so many hands on deck to make it happen. So that that's, I think, a little bit of a context for the international audience. And the what we're striking for, I think, is pretty simple. We're just asking for a fair cut of the profits that our work helps to generate. Right. I think the the what we've asked for in terms of at the negotiating table amounts to about two percent of these corporations operating profit over the last you know year, year over year and so uh and, and writing is really the backbone of how um, how much of this entertainment gets made both television like we've talked about and also film from our perspective if you take an equivalent show on this side of the water to something like uh, late night with Seth Meyers or Jimmy Fallon or one of those we don't have the monologue at the outset which is obviously a huge exercise mm-hmm. in uh, writing jokes mm-hmm. and it tends to rely probably slightly more on production around the interviews rather than on monologue and insert bits that are are pre-written so if i want to run something like the tonight show i get eight, ten writers, they write every night in a writer's room generating content for the programme, but I'm not allowed to hire them on an individual basis. I can't go to you and say, okay, Josh, I think you're worth X money per hour, come work for me. I have to apply union-organised rates. Is that right? That Yeah, that's pretty correct. I think a show like The Tonight Show would probably have a little bigger room than the eight to ten. It might be 12, 14 is my guess, um, but more because because it's every day. So the writers come in every day. They work on the show every day. You can see it, right? There's a, a monologue up top. There are, as you said, kind of sketch bits throughout, desk pieces, games that the writers work on. And you, you hire people individually, but there are union minimums in place to make it so that you can't just hire someone for a day, decide it didn't work out, and fire them. Or bring someone in only on Tuesdays because you think, oh, I'm only going to have this person do what they're an expert in on Tuesdays. And a lot of that, that's been decades of organizing by the Writers Guild of America to ensure that writing is a career and it's not just a gig, right, that you get to do every once in a while, uh, apart from like a quote unquote real job that it takes to to make ends meet and pay your rent and feed your family. So I I think that the the studios now, I I don't think, I know, are trying to erode some of those protections, uh, proposing things like a day rate for writers, proposing the end of term employment, you know, uh, so that they can hire you for as short a term as you want. Um, There are no 
minimum salaries though for uh, on streaming services for this kind of comedy variety program currently the so uh the switch of a lot of entertainment to streaming distribution has really changed the game in terms of seasons are getting shorter and it's kind of the wild west in terms of compensation but and it's I interesting think, to uh, hear an, an, an american oh, yes. remuneration system be what looks somewhat socialist in in outlook we tend to think of america as rapacious capitalist <laughs> you know you're on your own you make it or you don't i hire you on tuesday yeah. if i want to, i fire you the next morning zero hours yeah. contracts all that kind of thing it's unusual to hear a, a setup like that where there is such uh, protection for the writers. Give us a sense, because you said about being able to do it and make a living from it. If you are a writer in, in Hollywood now, if you are uh, got a regular gig on a, a series, whether it be live or a, a drama or comedy, what kind of money does a, a mid-level writer earn? So... It's it's a really good question, and I think like if you're working on a show, if you have one of the jobs on a show that runs forty weeks a year, right? I think you can earn a pretty comfortable living. However, the so many of these shows moving to streaming, the series orders are shortened. For these comedy variety shows, there's no minimum salary. The residuals, right, for reuse, which is constant on um, on a streaming platform, right? It's You don't have to wait for the show to air over and over again. You don't have to wait for a, a week where the show is off the air and they run a rerun. It's, it's constantly, these shows are constantly But give us a number, Josh. Are we consumer. talking six figures? I think you can earn six figures if you're working constantly. But... That is, it is getting harder and harder to work constantly. And I think what you said was so smart about the about it feeling very un-American, these these kind of socialist protections. And I think it's it's it feels un-American, quote unquote, in a good way, right? Like I think this kind of labor protection should be more widespread. And I think a sentiment to that effect is growing in the United States uh, against the kind of recent historical trend of my boss should be able to treat me as badly as he wants. And, uh, I, I, you know, there, there's no protection. Everything is at the mercy of the people with capital. Well, so now, I, I do think that, on that, oh, Josh, yes. I suspect that even the, the slightly socialist European lens at this might begin to, to uh, balk slightly at the residuals issue, because this is one that I'd like you to explain to me. As I understand it, if I hire you, Josh, at union rates and you write a comedy for me and I pay you your check and I say, it's been a pleasure working with you, Josh, you did great work. I then go and I promote this and I market this and it sells like hotcakes. I have to keep giving you checks for the success of something beyond the action of actually writing it. Well, I think that if you're making money off of the work that the writers did, that feels like a very fair... Co- uh, that feels like fair compensation to me. That if I, just because I do the writing and 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 then I'm done with that work, you're still profiting off my writing. It's not like when it's a hit, the writing melts away. It's still there, right? That's the the backbone. The script is the backbone of television and film. And do and I have so to do I the same for the, the for. lighting guys, the sound guys, the camera guys, the teamsters who drove the trucks, the elect- electricians who ran all the cabling, the catering this people? Do they all get back end? Uh, not all. I think some, you know, there are some actors. I believe there are some in the Directors Guild, ver- various positions there. And I think that that, but I, I think what you're saying is more fair than what's happening. I don't think that what the writers are asking for is special treatment at the exclusion of others, right? I think that what we're 
hopefully able to get and what we, we believe that we're able to get in, in in these negotiations is what's fair. And I think what we what the, the line you drew isn't like writers are special. Nobody else deserves anything. What we're saying is everyone who does this kind of work that that is um, central to the the making of this entertainment that people consume and that these corporations make huge profits of should share in that success and prosperity because they're the ones who are doing the work right it's the the CEOs of these companies um, there's eight CEOs of entertainment companies that made 773 million dollars between the eight of them in uh, 2022. How is that more fair? What, that's, what that's was your just, favorite uh, show that they th- made? That's because they're geniuses and people of extraordinary talent who must be <laughs> <laughs> remunerated to this degree. Right. Now, you touched on one bit of this that I want to go back into some detail because one of the things that is, is, as I understand it, becoming a big problem is the changes in the industry. In the old days, the writers had to deal with the film companies and the broadcast companies, many of whom were owned by the same parents and had systems in which they worked. If you now take the streamers, the streamers, instead of hiring you for, let's say, a six-month duration of a series, they could hire you for three weeks, get the entire series out of you, and if it becomes, like a Stranger thing, a, a huge streaming hit, what they're saying is we don't want to lose out on the profits of that hit by having to share them. That's a significant shift in the negotiation. Is it possible to come to an agreement that covers old-style TV and streaming all at once if they're so different? I think... I think that is certainly possible, right? Because these companies are often have a foot in both worlds. They're not, NBC is still NBC, even though they also have Peacock, right? So if they're making money from all these streams and and the work we're doing is the same work, I think we should be able to share in that success. And you really pinpointed that shift to streaming has allowed these corporations to kind of seize on uh, a, a portion of the profits that is historically uh, shared amongst the people that help create this work. And it's not, they don't deserve all the profits from it because they, again, didn't do all the work. They, uh, we, it is the the writers and the, the other creative professionals and technical professionals that make these shows. And for that, for the profits they reap off them to just be funneled upwards to CEOs and to investors feels unfair. And I think to go back earlier, that is the kind of central uh, premise of what we're talking about. It's that people should be paid for the work that they do fairly and for the value that they generate. And I don't think that's controversial. And what they're saying is, don't want to, not gonna. Right? Their <laughs> argument isn't that that they're right and we're wrong. Well, now, there is one bit on this that that I think people may find controversial, which is one of the requirements or one of the suggestions that the Writers Guild has put forth is that you must have a minimum amount of people in the writer's room, depending on the scale of the production. So I think if, if it goes above a certain amount in financing, there's a requirement for there to be five writers engaged on it. Now, what does that do to the individual auteur genius? So let's say Josh Gondelman has come up with the new Black Mirror. He is sitting there scribbling away like mad, creating absolutely wonderful television on his Todd. Why would a producer have to hire another four people to sit in a room and look at you doing it? I mean, I do think, first of all, I'm not that guy. <laughs> I would, 
I will not accept the label of auteur genius, even in a hypothetical. But I do think what we're trying to do is set the floor to preserve writers' rooms, right? There are uh, some some really wonderful works of television that have been made this way in the past. And I think I don't think they would be worse necessarily for collaboration. But of course, there are people who are capable of really special things. What we're trying to protect against is the idea that you're saying, well, um, Michaela Cole made uh, wrote a show by yourself or Mike White wrote a show by himself. And now we're going to put the pressure on everyone to have to be an auteur genius because that's better for our bottom line, right? It's really taking, what, what's happening is the shrinking of writer's rooms, the shrinking of how the, the terms of employment, right? These There are these mini rooms, which means a few writers will come in making often less than they've they've earned in the past because they've worked their way up and they're getting paid uh, a, a much lower fee because everyone has comes into these mini rooms at the same tier and you work for a few weeks and you do some of the hardest work to really break the season of a show opener or break the series open and then there's no guarantee that you'll stay on that you'll be on set and so it's it's uh writers are being paid less because they're working less and at lower rates and they're getting less experience, right? So it is really kind of squeezing from both sides where you're not developing these skills to um, become the next generation of people running and creating shows. And while you're working, you are, you're getting paid fewer weeks, lower pay, and it just doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. And so that's really what we're protecting against. It Indeed. is not a punitive measure to tell a brilliant writer that that their work is no good or that the way they work is wrong. And we've had enormous support from showrunners that uh, that uh, that want to protect writers' rooms overall okay and, and it's evident as well in, in terms of the if you if you look at any of the coverage there there is obviously a significant momentum among the writers behind this and a significant amount mm -hmm. of the the acting community has come out a lot of the people who themselves yeah. people like the Tina Fey's of this world who are, who are uh, writers as well have come out in support we will follow with interest how it progresses before I let you go Josh there is one uh, question that I do want to put to you um, unrelated to the strike of course there is a programme yeah. in Ireland called The Late Late Show. Um, it's not the James Corden one. They stole the title. The Late Late Show uh, was originally created in, I think, 1962. It was uh, to model, it was modelled off The Tonight Show, um, but it was live. So it's the world's longest running live TV show. It's still on. It's now heading for its uh, fourth permanent host. And one of the things that happened to it over the years was they began to discover you can't get enough celebrities to do a two and a half hour program every Friday in Ireland <laughs> modelled on The Tonight Show. So it began to include magazine elements. It began to include um, current affairs, all that kind of stuff. And that's where we are. But whenever the host changes, which is what's happening at the minute, people say it should be more like Jimmy Fallon or it should be more like Jay Leno or it should have a monologue. It should be lighter and all the rest of it. Can you give us a sense, if you take a Tonight Show or if you take Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, which you worked on, the mm. level of um, writing that goes into that, the amount of people and for how long would be dedicated to each monologue? Because I think that might put in perspective the kind of resources that would be required to emulate those shows. Sure. So for the the Tonight Show, it's multiple people working all day until taping to write, uh, sometimes, you know, each person writing dozens if not hundreds of jokes a day for the sake of whittling it down to the best however many go to air and then for last week tonight i can speak to you a little more specifically but those long pieces that john uh you know delivers on on tv so so well those are the work of at least two writers plus 
John Oliver and Tim Carvel, the executive producers who are also writers. And those long pieces can take up to four weeks standard to, you know, synthesize the research that the research department brings in, watch the footage that those producers bring in, craft that into a story, make sure the jokes hold up. And um, so that is, that's weeks of work for several writers. And then plus the top of show stories that are a couple writers each that week. And so it is, you know, you're talking about eight to 12 writers, I think, over the history of that show at a time, eight to 12 at a time. And these are not people earning minimum time, wage. Five days a week. No, I mean, these are people that, that and, and that's because of the Writers Guild contract that's been in place <laughs> that we've fought for for decades to tie it back, right? The and reason that the, that the shows can be resourced, <laughs> yeah, is this, this decades uh, and generations of, of union organizing and activism. Josh, it has been a great pleasure to talk to you. And if you want to see Josh, Josh has uh, done some of his stand-up on uh, both the, the Late Show and on uh, Conan O'Brien. And he has a piece, I don't want to sell out his material, but he has a piece discussing the similarities between um, a sliced pan and a pug that is highly entertaining. And I recommend <laughs> it if you get a chance. Josh, best of luck with the strike. We uh, we hope it goes well. And obviously we will be following uh, as it progresses. That is Josh Gondelman, author, writer, producer, stand-up comedian, and currently striking member of the Writers Guild. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.